Hi, this is Nikki Beauchamp, Global Real Estate Advisor at Engel Volkers in New York City. For 25 years, you've been coming to Inman events to connect. Now Inman is coming to you June 2nd through June 4th. Learn more about Connect Now at Inman.com. Hi, this is Brad Inman with my Daily Dispatch. I'm really excited today to have someone I've known, I think for as long as Inman News has been around. I remember meeting this gentleman at a at a National Association of Realtors convention, even pre-internet. And he was with a company, I think it was GE, that had a real estate solution. And I was a budding journalist. And uh, I'd wrote some controversial stuff. And uh, a lot of people in the industry didn't think much of me. But I went by Errol's booth. And Errol was in the booth. And he told me how much he loved what we were doing at Inman. And I always remember that because I needed that at the time. But anyway, who we have today is Errol Samuelson, who is uh, an executive at Zillow. He's an unbelievable depth and breadth of real estate experience. Probably knows the industry as good as anyone and uh, knows the skeletons and know where they're buried. Welcome, Errol. How are you? Doing great. Doing well, Brad. I could use a haircut, but apart from that, I'm doing okay. Well, you're lucky to have hair. Don't, don't go there. <laughs> hey, Errol, let's do this because you really are a thinker. Um, what does the real estate industry look like post COVID? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, one of the things that people have been talking about is do consumers look for different kinds of shelter? Uh, I think, look, the one thing that we're fortunate about is that, you know, a place to live, it's a basic human need. I mean, we are so fortunate to be in an industry that is on that sort of that base level of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. You know, we're not, sort of three rows up and, and the, the folks in those industries, you know, it's going to be tough. So there's, there's a clear desire for people to have a, a place that they love to live. I think in some ways we've all been locked up in our homes and we feel that even more. Um, but I, one of the questions is, you know, are people going to look for different kinds of housing? And we did a survey a couple of days ago um, where we talked to people who've been working from home and we said, if you were allowed to continue working from home, would you, first of all, want to keep doing that? And about three quarters said they would. And then of those people who said, I'd like to work from home, we said, would you think about moving? And about two thirds of those people said that they would move probably out to the suburbs or, you know, maybe to a place where they could have a yard or they could actually have an office with walls. You know, they're tired of their open plan, um, modern housing. So, you know, maybe there is a change in demand for real estate that also may just be sort of reacting to the last eight weeks of being locked up. So it's, I think it's too early to say. Um, I do think that the, the way we conduct real estate could change. And there was, there's a, a quote from a guy, um, you know, I'm a Canadian, uh, he used to run Statistics Canada. And he was saying, you know, when you have these, these massive upheavals, um, that's when you sometimes you get real change and actually that change can drive growth. So like in North Carolina, uh, I think it's North Carolina, they recently allowed, you know, electronic notarization, but it's only until the summer. Well, why not just allow that permanently? You know, why do you have to have wet signatures on a, on a refi? Why, you know, if you're a real estate agent, why do you have to physically go into an office to take your test? Why couldn't you take that online? So I think there's an opportunity here um, post COVID to try and finally, you know, streamline some of these, these practices, which are very, you know, physically based, you know. What I don't do you think, Errol, that consumers were way ahead of the industry here? I think 
I, I always wanted to sign my DocuSign on my phone. <laughs> I never wanted to get a big fat wad of paper. Sure. And uh, I never wanted to have a notary or an appraiser or any of those people in my house. And, and oh, great, we come to your house. Wow, that's a real, you know, why not? You know, I, I talked to the guy at Notarize and they still have a notary, but at least it's through Zoom. And there are other solutions that don't even require that. Um, you know, we got used to going through Homeland Security with biometrics and fingerprints. We got used to going through, as you know, coming from Canada, US with through, you know, passport control without even a passport anymore. Like you think if we can protect citizens from terrorism, we can certainly protect everybody. I'm hoping it lasts. God, if it doesn't, I, I didn't know that about North Carolina. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard of, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, cautiously optimistic that maybe this is the moment that sort of breaks some of those traditions and, and we can unstick things. Hopefully we'll see. Errol, let me ask you this. Let's talk about post COVID is the indie broker and it's still always well up until this always a big percentage of of agents are affiliated with indies most people don't realize that mm -hmm. they're not associated with big brands um but is the structure of real estate as it is now um you know big brokers indie brokers this diverse carnival of people do the agents have any more power to do the virtual franchises like exp just riff on anything you think maybe yeah. this will see change or is it too early to tell? I'm not sure if, if the, the changes in the brokerage industry are driven by the pandemic or if they're just sort of long overdue. I mean, I think that there are some indie brokers who are amazing. Um, you and I have a friend, Matt Beal. He runs Hawaii Life in Hawaii. Um, he's got that conference we've both been to. This is a conference just for his own agents, you know, um, called Worth Shop. And then he's got his... TV show on HGTV and he's got, he, he's got this beautiful um, book that he puts out that, that has some listings in it, but this, you know, topics about art and ecology and the environment, you know, that, that company's got an amazing culture and they are going to be just fine. Um, and, but I think, I think the brokerages which are challenged um, are maybe your more just prototypical average brokerage. Um, and you know what, you know what the pressures have been, agent splits have been the big issue. So ever since Dave Linegar started Remax in the seventies, and then Gary came along with Keller Williams with profit sharing. And then, you know, you've seen this, this tremendous, um, shift of, of dollar from being company dollar over to agent dollar. And then just lately with, with compass, uh, and others who are venture backed, you know, creating a bidding war for talent, the problems got even worse. So you've got the profitability issue. I don't think that goes away. Um, in fact, maybe it's even more dire because, you know, if you have fewer transactions happening, the brokerage has fixed costs, um, you know, maybe, maybe the profitability issue gets worse. So I think there's that. But I think the other challenge is that um, what's the value proposition? You know, so it used to be brand, but now teams would rather brand themselves or, or maybe it was um, beautiful offices, but you know, first of all, clients probably would rather meet their agent in a Starbucks anyway, pre-COVID and post-COVID, you know, they'd probably rather do it on, on FaceTime or Zoom. So I think, I think traditional brokerage as we think of traditional, not, not the Hawaii lives, which just have got the culture and just so many other things going on. I think, I think they're in trouble. And I, I think, um, I, especially those people that don't have, uh, Alex Perillo said this well, a succession plan, because some of these guys want to give up before COVID. And now they're being hammered 
And he talked about how it happened during the last recession in 2010, that these cats, you know, they're just done. They, they're done. And either they hand it off to their kids or they do some, you know, um, what do we call it? Aqua hire or whatever it's called in the tech biz. They just kind of pass on. I mean, if you look at Compass's raging, you know, acquisitions, they got a lot of companies for no consideration. And that's when the housing market was pretty good. Yeah. So, and that brings up a question. You know, you look back in 210, 211, I talked to Pete Flynn about this and others, and I've talked to Rich Barton. It was during that period, Spencer Raskoff also talked about it, how that really played to Zillow's hands and it really played to a lot of innovators' hands. It was during that downturn when Realogy was on its heels from $3.5 billion of debt from Apollo and a bad housing market and really was reeling and couldn't innovate. And Zillow and Trulia came in and you could already even say a few years, few years later with Realogy on its heels is how Compass was enabled to take market share away from the, the, be the beast who was weak. Let, let's not go over that again, but tell me, is there anything like that that could occur here? There's probably some innovators, some people stepping, we may not even see them. They might be right in front of our faces. Mm -hmm. uh, even legacy companies that are adapting here that might use this as an opportunity to shift the table because there certainly was a shifting of tables back then. Yeah, no, I think, I think that could happen. Um, so I, there's probably a few categories. I think, I think Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, I mean, they've got lots of cash and what they've done is they're focused more on, on the ancillary revenues, the mortgage, the title. And I think that model works fine. So I think, I think their companies, Home Services of America, I think they're going to do well. Uh, I think the low cost models will do well, like the EXPs, right? No fixed footprint, um, very, very favorable splits, you know, HomeSmart. So I think those low cost companies do well. I do, in that category of sort of emerging um, brokerage models, there's a, there's a company in the Bay Area, uh, the guy who runs it, his name is Guy Gal. The company's called Side, you know him. Um, and I think that's a really interesting model where you take these, these top teams who don't want to deal with brokerage operations and what side does is, is lets them keep their own brand. So it looks like it's, you know, Inman real estate. Um, but they run all the back office, it, this idea of sort of brokerage in a cloud. Um, I think there's some interesting things happening there. You know, um, you know, I, I thought it, it occurred to me when you go to a store and you slide your card, you don't know squares behind it. It doesn't right. matter to you, right? It matters you and the merchant eyeball to eyeball. You're buying a shirt. You trust him, but he's got square sitting. What I'd love to see slide do. I still don't see them kind of promoting themselves and I guess they need to, I don't criticize them. They're a smart company. Uh, they need to promote in our community to get realtors to adopt it. But it seems like that's the the dream here, you know, where you have plug and play, uh, kind of like e-commerce, that you can get up and going as a real estate company mm -hmm. and not worry about all that stuff, right? And keep your brand. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And part, I mean, part of what they're leveraging is the fact that they've got scale. So they're not, they're not doing this for, you're not trying to build tech for three or four teams, you're building it for, you know, a bunch of teams. Um, we, we've been experimenting a little bit with this notion um, you know, so we're, our goal is to buy thousands of homes a month under Zillow offers. Uh, and so, and so we've been asking ourselves, are there things we can do to help our broker partners? So, you know, in the past, for example, when a lead would come in, we would act as the call center on behalf of the agent because the agent maybe was busy or at dinner or whatever. So that was a service that, that we could sort of put in the cloud for the agent. We asked ourselves, could we do something similar for the brokers? Um, something we've been experimenting with, and it's just 
nascent is could we help the brokers um, who are our partners with their listings? So we actually have a, a few people who are, you know, English majors that we've hired um, who to write the romance paragraphs, the listing description, so that our broker partner doesn't have to do that. And we get them completely familiar, let's say, with Phoenix and the parks and the schools and everything else. But then we, we actually will write the romance paragraph, send that to the broker and say, see if you like this for your listing. Um, but you can imagine a bunch of those sort of routine administrative services getting outsourced, either to a tech company who could help the broker or, or in the case of someone like Aside, just have that the back office support services. I, anyway, I think there's something there. Hi, this is Joe Rand. I'm excited I may be coming to your home soon. For 25 years, you have been coming to Inman Connect. Now, Connect is coming to you. Find details at Inman.com. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you this. You know, I tell the story about throwing my rumba in the pool. And I, I tell the story only because it's important we use this time to, to you know, scrutinize our own technology because we can't afford all the subscriptions to all of it, right? right. And we, we have to go with the stuff that's going to help our ROI during a tough time. And we never had time. The industry's never had time to sit back and look at not just the new technology they must embrace, like Zoom to do contracts and deals or e-signatures or, you know, um, notarize or whatever that may be. It's also a great time to get rid of the crap we don't need. And yeah. you know, I threw the rumba in the pool because that was my way of saying, I don't need that thing. I'd rather use a broom. It works better. Um, what are the technologies that you see, looking at all the software out there, that that is going to maybe, without naming names, company names, but what's some of the stuff that's going to become useless, and then what's the stuff that's a clear winner in the future? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, I, I I feel like there is just the. The market is too small. The real estate market actually isn't that big. You've got maybe 200 licensees, you know, a million and a half realtors. Um, there's the market's too small to support 50 different CRM platforms, you know, yeah. or, or 10 different transaction management platforms. So I think you might see uh, a weeding out. I think that's possible. Validation or just some going under? Uh, probably both. Um, you know, but a lot of times there's the only real value in acquiring one of these companies would be simply to get the customer base and try and convert them. And, you know, honestly, sometimes it's cheaper just to, you know, hire salespeople. Um, I, I think the technology that will get more adoption are, are things around, um, you know, virtualizing real estate. So one of the things we saw is, is within a week. So, so the, I mean, the magic date was March 11th. That was when the NBA canceled the season. That's when Trump shut down travel from, from Europe. And that was the moment where everybody sort of had this, wow, you know, this is, this is real. Um, the week after that, we saw the number of 3D tours, sort of virtual walkthrough tours. It, it jumped by, you know, hundreds of percent, okay? Um, right. And we continue to see a lot of interest in the ability to tour. Um, so I think those kinds of technology, the, the ability, for example, if a home is, is vacant to go tour it yourself without having, you know, people come with you. I think the virtual technologies, whether it's in the marketing side or the closing side, I think that's where the action is going to be provided we can get the regulators to allow us to do some of these, these things. So, I mean, to your point about the appraisal. Let's move to the MLS. I had a really good 
interview over the weekend with Emily Chevrolet of Austin and her energy and her, you know, what they're doing in Austin. Cause you know, Austin's always doing innovative stuff. And, and I was really challenging her and saying, what must the MLS do now to step up and really deliver, you know, at least market information. Cause now more than ever, I want my realtor to know all the subtleties and nuances of the market. And there isn't a lot of good local market information. There really isn't. And, um, but just MLS generally, what, what we're seeing consolidation in probably some other sectors of the industry. Is this finally the forcing function? Is there any correlation to pandemics and maybe having one national MLS, which has always been my wish? Um, what, what do you see happening on that horizon? And yeah. you know, how should MLSs maybe adapt to these situations? Like I was shocked when she told me, yeah, most of them don't provide good local market information. I said, what, why not? <laughs> anyway, what, what do you think, Errol? I, I would start by saying that we take MLS for granted in, in the US and Canada, but it's a very much a North American phenomenon. You don't have it elsewhere. And so uh, I'm about to make a bunch of criticisms of the MLS, but that's because I think we can improve it, not because I think MLS is a bad idea. It's, right. it's an amazing idea. Um, there, there's too many of them. Everybody knows that. Uh, but there's other issues that are related to there being too many. There's a lack of standardization. So. If you're a tech vendor, let's say you want to build a website, 20 years ago, NAR created this standard called IDX or Internet Data Exchange. And you'd think it would be uniform across the country, but it's not. Every MLS has their own rules. So you can't build a single product. You got to build it 600 times. It's nuts. Uh, recently, NAR introduced their, their rule 8.0, their clear cooperation was in their, um, they, they passed that in their November meetings. Um, and once again, MLSs are implementing it in different ways. So if you're a tech company, you can't just build one product. And, and so I feel we need standardization because otherwise it becomes a barrier to innovation. You, you, have, you can't be a nimble company with three people and go build a product because you, don't, you, you need 50 people or 20 people to, to handle all these various cases around the country. So standardization is a problem. Um, I think the second big issue is just overzealous protection of the data it's not to say that there shouldn't be sort of secure data, but you know, on Inman today, there was an article about the fact that NER just passed this policy saying that brokers now have the right to access their own data. Uh, you know, pardon me, they, you know, that, that you had to actually put that as a rule, but for a lot of MLSs, you can't get the data. So what I'm about to say, this may be sacrilegious or, or, or that's probably the wrong word, but it, controversial. Um, Go for it. But, you know, if, if, if I could sort of, you know, snap my fingers and wake up in the morning, here's what I would do with the MLS world. Um, I actually would not go for a single national MLS because I think that would be a monopoly. Um, and monopolies tend to move slowly. You need competition. And I think the government would probably end up regulating it because real estate's too big. Um, but I, I would like a model that was similar to um, the mobile phone industry. So, you know, if you're on Verizon and I'm on AT&T, I can still call you, okay? So what I would love to see would be four MLSs and maybe it's HAR and maybe it's, you know, Bright MLS and, and two others, but they're actually na national. Every one of those MLSs will take a listing from anywhere in the country. And the moment I enter that listing, it, it has to, it must get shared with the other three MLSs. So in other words, you have four MLSs. They're all competing with one another. They all have the same data, but, and then as an agent, 
let's say I'm, I'm in Houston, I can join the HAR MLS, I could join the Bright MLS, doesn't matter. Just like you can switch from Sprint to Verizon to T-Mobile, I think that would be really interesting. Where and then it also drives down the cost to the consumer, in this case drives yes. down the cost to the realtor, because they're competing and they'll compete on product and quality, but also price. Yes. I think that's a great service. I like that, and that's gonna be the headline of this podcast. Okay. I always need a headline. There you go. Um, you know, I don't, unfortunately, that may never happen, but that's what I would like to see. And then if you're a new entrant, if you're a startup, you know, you aren't, you aren't fighting over access to the database. That's always been the issue. Um, you could actually go, you know, you could build a niche MLS that, that focuses only on land, but is really, really good at land, you know? Well, when I uh, was invited to give that opening at the FTC um, Justice Department seminar a year ago about constraint of trade and everything, and um, I remember I was really, I read something preparing for that that said, oh, it's easy to get the MLS. You just have to have $2 million, and which I thought was the wrong number. It costs a lot more than that, as you know well, Errol, doing, have done it twice. Um, but even the $2 million, I thought, what arrogance. Like, mm -hmm. I've started companies. And this just if you need the database to use your algorithm or use your application or use whatever innovation to tell someone, oh, to get started, you need $2 million. That'd be like saying to get a real estate license, you need $2 million. I mean... Yeah give me a friggin' break. And, and just the arrogance, it's only $2 million. And I thought, wow, you got to spend $2 million out of the gate to aggregate all the MLSs. That, that's a sick, sorry picture, I thought. And I said that from stage. Um, and, and that I is, that, you know, if you could give maybe with that scenario, uh, easy access to everybody cheaply, innovators and realtors, wouldn't that be a beautiful scene? It would be because it goes, basically, you've got these two problems in real estate tech. One is the market's small, okay? So, you know, you're not going after a Facebook size market. You're going after 2 million people. Yeah. And then there's these massive barriers to your point. I don't think it's 2 million either. I, I bet you it's, you know, four to 10 probably, um, you know, and so that's why on the one hand, people complain about the lack of innovation in real estate tech. I mean, that's your reason. Yeah. There's too many barriers. There's still, a yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're running out of time. What's a message to, um, what's a message to the indie broker right now? Let's just go through the list. One or two words. Andy Broker, what do they need to do? Uh, they need to stay the course, try and conserve capital. But I think the, the future for the indie Broker actually could be, could be quite, quite beautiful because they have differentiation in their branding and their marketing. Big brokers, legacy companies, the big floor plates, a lot of commercial real estate. What yeah. should they be doing? Um, I think they should be cutting expenses. Uh, and, and perhaps think about focusing on the, the best and the brightest agents. Um, because I think, I think the key there is to actually uh, reduce cost, reduce footprint. Local MLS. Uh, standardize and, you know, think about consolidation. And uh, the portals, what's, what's your duty to the world here? What should you be doing? What would you like to see? What would you like to tell Rich Barton through Brad Edmonds podcast, which you've probably already told him many times? What should what should Zillow be doing? What we're trying to do is is to help get the real estate market going again, uh, but do it safely. So uh, we, we this morning we announced we hired um, a former Attorney General, uh, or sorry, not a former um, General Surgeon of the United States to help us. Uh, she's on contract, and so we're trying to figure out. And this is not something we're doing just ourselves, but how do we work together as an industry to figure out how do we make uh, real estate safe 
so we can get transactions going again. I think that that ought to be the focus, not just for portals, but for everybody. Um, there's a there's clearly a desire to move. There's a need to move. Um, if we can make it safe, this industry is going to be healthy. I think that's the key to be safe. I just got an invitation. You guys are having a party at uh, at Connect now. I want to thank you for that because. As you know, any good real estate conference, it's about having people like you on stage, but it's also the networking we all love. So, and, and Connect would not be Connect without a Zillow party. There have been some, some amazing Zillow parties. And I wanna thank you for always uh, being a great source to Inman. And, um, and it's been great following you through your career and following Zillow now. So uh, thanks for everything you do for the industry, Earl. You've always been there for a lot of people. Thanks, Brad, appreciate it. This is Brad Inman checking out. Tune in soon to my next Daily Dispatch.